Michael is out of control. He has a severe temper tantrum every day, throws food during meals, deliberately breaks his toys and household items. He hits and bites his younger brother and sister and refuses to comply with reasonable request. Asked to put away his toys or to go to bed, the five-year-old replies, No, you can't make me. He is, in truth, a very unpleasant child. Child psychologists Jacob Azarod and Paul Chance write in the following in the magazine Psychology Today. We seem to be in the midst of an epidemic of Michaels. I have been a child psychologist for 35 years, and each year I see parents dealing with more and more severe problems. Their children are not just ill-mannered. They are whiny, selfish, arrogant, rude, defiant, and violent. Most of them are also miserable, as are their parents. Such disgraceful behavior in young children predicts serious problems later in life. As adolescents, they are more likely to drop out of school, use drugs, engage in delinquency, be clinically depressed. And when I read newspaper articles about road rage, commuter rage, and office rage, it seems to me that many out-of-control children are growing up to be out-of-control adults. A frustrated father writes this sad story in the Child Behavioral Health Forum. My daughter, just six, does not do anything she's told. She is aggressive towards my wife and I. When asked to go to her bedroom for time out, she will not go and screams that we cannot make her. We've been trying to ignore her and when her behavior is bad, but this just seems to make it worse. She has spat in our dinner, poured orange juice over my head. She is an only child and is rather spoiled. Think so? <laughs> to think that any parent would tolerate such behavior is unbelievable. In fact, I imagine that many of us are actually becoming angry when we hear something like that because we realize that not only is this making the parent's life miserable, in the long run, it's going to ruin the child's life. Not to speak of the siblings and the rest of the family. Our jails and cemeteries are full of young adults who grew up in dysfunctional homes with parents who let them get away with murder. In some cases, real murder. This brings us to the main point of today's message. The point I would like you to be thinking about as we get into God's Word this morning and the point I'd like for you to be thinking about when we leave it at the end of the message. The point is, toleration leads to tragedy. Toleration leads to tragedy. Toleration also leads to tragedy in the family of God. In each local church family around the world, toleration not only will lead to tragic consequences in that church, but will infuriate the Lord Jesus Christ who loves that church and who is committed to seeing that church family take a hold of all that has been reserved in heaven for them. But there's one thing 
that can turn what it could have been a great triumph into a great tragedy. It's called toleration. Toleration. To drive home the lesson to all churches, our Lord singled out one church, the church in the ancient city of Pergamon, to make his point. And we're going to pick up the story in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And what we're doing, for those of you that just have maybe come in on this at this point, we've been taking the book of Revelation and we're going through it sort of chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But we've been going through the seven churches of Revelation. And we've come now to the third church that our Lord has sent a letter to. And each church he has strategically picked, not just for the church's sake, but to instruct all of us in what he wants in a church as well as in our personal lives. So let's pick up the letter here that he wrote to the church at Pergamum. It's Pergamus in the language in the New Testament, but the city was actually known as Pergamum. That's how I'll refer to it. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some to eat, some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. To truly appreciate what our Lord is saying to us here in this and through this church, I would suggest that we back up and consider the community into which this church was born, the community or the city, the town of Pergamon as it's known outside the Bible. Pergamon was the capital city of the Roman, Roman province of Asia, that is Asia Minor, which to us would be western Turkey. It was situated on a cone-shaped hill about a thousand feet from the valley below that the Caucasus River would run through the valley. It was a beautiful valley. And then above uh, Pergamum, there was an acropolis about another 300 feet beyond the, the height of the city that uh, stood out and was a very prominent place on which they built temples and other things. Pergamum is about 60 miles from Smyrna and a little further to Ephesus. About 15 miles, however, from Pergamum to the Mediterranean Sea. And therein lies one of the problems that Pergamum has and will had throughout its history and that is it was not well situated for international commerce. It did not have a seaport. And in that day, that was critical to be a key city in the Roman Empire. However, in spite of being landlocked and lacking in commercial opportunities, Pergamum became a much visited and beloved city of the ancient world. 
unlike Ephesus and Smyrna. It was not well suited for commerce, but it had something going for it that really attracted people. Probably not all that unlike our city of Las Vegas, which, as you know, isn't exactly in what you would call paradise. But on the other hand, people thronged to go there. Well, Pergamum had a reputation for providing a certain entertainment, if you will, a certain attraction to people. It was known, first of all, early in its history as a city, as a place or a center for learning. It had a library that was second only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt, which many of you remember was from ancient history, was the library of the ancient world. But this was second to that library, boasting over 200,000 volumes or books. Now, in that day and age, to make a book meant somebody had to get out a, a, a quill and actually pen each page of the book by hand. So it was a very expensive process. And to think that a library would have 200,000 volumes is unimaginable from their standpoint in that day. Pergamon, as a result of that draw, developed into an intellectual and cultural center and continued for centuries even through the time that the book of Revelation was written. It attracted scholars and intellectuals and nobility from all over the ancient world. Modern scholars have sort of likened Pergamum not so much to a Las Vegas as to a university town, sort of in the middle of nowhere, but yet having a certain charm. It had a theater, it had architectural uh, buildings that had a certain charm to them. The city really had a draw to it. The second thing that the city was known for is it became known for its religious pluralism. It supported many pagan religions and heathen temples. There was the great altar that was dedicated to the chief god of the Greek world, Zeus Olympus. There was also an, an altar to Athena. There was also the patron goddess of, uh, who was the patron goddess of Athens. And there was also the worship of uh, Dionysus, the god of vegetation. And lastly, there was Escopulus, Escopulopeus, I guess is the way they say it, the god of healing. Third, Pergamum became known for its focus on the worship of Caesar. More than a century before the book of Revelation was written, the king of Pergamum at the time, Attalus III, died. And because he didn't trust his son, he bequeathed his entire kingdom, which would include that whole area of Asia Minor, to Rome. And as a result of that, the Romans began to transform the old Asiatic kingdom, where the seven churches are located, into a province of Asia and made Pergamum the capital of that province. It was the capital city. In 29 B.C., just 29 years before Christ, Pergamum became the first city of the emperor of Rome, which had devoted itself solely to the worship of Caesar. Citizens of Pergamum were required to burn a pinch of incense at the foot of Caesar's statue almost daily, honoring him as God. And those who refused to were immediately arrested. Emperor worship was at the heart of Pergamum's political life. 
and interest. But at the heart of the people's daily life and daily interest was the worship of pagan gods and participation in pagan religious practices. As mentioned, Pergamum had four patron deities, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Aesculapius. Aesculapius, I'm having a hard time with that one. Countless altars and beautiful groves lined the streets. Every time you turned a corner, there was an altar to some god or some deity. There were temples everywhere. Almost all the meat that was butchered in the town was first dedicated to some god at some particular public celebration or festival for that god before it was finally consumed by the people as food. Every act of the social life of those who were living in Pergamum was bound up or wrapped up in the religious, pagan religious festivities and celebrations. Furthermore, many of these pagan religions in Pergamum involved a lot of temple prostitution. What this amounted to was young girls, before they got to a point where they began to want to marry, would first sell out their bodies as an opportunity to make money for their God who would then favor them. And they would do this as temple prostitutes, just young girls. Sexual promiscuity was also prevalent in the never-ending banquets and social gatherings within the city. And it was all done under the guise of pagan religious acceptance. The fourth thing that this city was known for is Pergamon became known as a place of physical healing. The connection with Escapulopius, the medical god of the Greeks, was the Escapulopian, which is a basically this huge facility, an immense health center that had a sacred spring, a temple, a library, a theater, an amphitheater, and all kinds of sacred buildings, along with a stadium, special baths that were for public bathing and healing. So people come from all over the world. We've had places like that in our own country. I know uh, so the uh, springs there in um, Hot Springs in uh, Arkansas at one time was a huge draw for that kind of mindset, that you get to these waters and they somehow heal you. Of course, they were looking upon that in our time more as a uh, therapeutic thing. But in this time, they believed that God, Aesculapius, was uh, one who would heal them if they got into these waters. And so it involved a lot of religious beliefs as well. Now, Aesculapius was represented as holding a staff. And the staff was the staff of Hermes, one of the Greek gods. And he had taken the staff, and around the staff there was a snake coiled. And you may recognize that, that that has become the symbol of modern medicine today the medical profession, although I think in some cases they use a two-headed snake, and there's debate on where that came from, but nevertheless, the whole idea of the snake around the pole came from this particular thing in Pergamum, which gave birth to the concept of physical healing. There were many deities, many festivals, many religious affairs in ancient Pergamum. And coupled with a strong intellectual and cultural climate, the, per- the Pergamanians were of necessity the most open-minded, the most tolerant, the most understanding, the most accepting, most compromising people of the ancient world. 
We welcome everyone. You have a God, come on in and worship. We'll worship your God, you worship ours. Everyone's welcome. Every belief is accepted. Now, the one thing they didn't tolerate in Pergamum was Christians. Because Christians worship the only true God. And so they didn't tolerate Christians, but they tolerated everything else. Sound familiar, by the way? In the midst of this city, the Lord Jesus Christ established a church. The church at Pergamum. It was a church that, like all churches, was to be a lampstand holding forth the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in what the church taught as well as in how it behaved and conducted itself. However, it was also a church which had to cope with fervent emperor worship and rampant paganism. The church was both a success and a failure, an encouragement and a warning to all churches is going to be given by our Lord Jesus Christ through this church. And he does it by writing an open letter so that all of us can read what he's writing to this church so that we, hopefully, in our day and in our church, and this is true for all churches, may take to heart what he's writing. Now, I'd like for you to look with me as we consider the implications of just what our Lord Jesus Christ wrote. Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, Jesus is telling John, this is what I want you to do, write these words, Pergamos, Pergamum. These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword was a sword that was used to cut and to pierce the human body. It was an instrument of judgment and death. In the Roman world in particular, a province or governor was entrusted with the right of the sword, had power over death and over life. However, provinces and governors were divided into those who had the right of the sword and those who did not have the right of the sword. Now, what's interesting is that Pergamum was one of those official capitals of province of Asia, and as a capital, it had the right of the sword, a power and authority which it used against the church at Pergamum, the Christian church. However, Jesus introduces his letter by emphasizing that he is the one and only true power and authority of the sword. He goes back to an image that he had shared with John back in chapter 1. And you recall when we went through that, the image. And the one thing it said is that here is this image of Jesus as a warrior. And out of his mouth is coming a sharp two-edged sword by which in Revelation 19 we read that he would smite the nations. In this particular portion of Scripture, we read that he is the one who has the two-edged sword. And later in verse 16, we're reading that he is telling them to repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them, the false teachers that we'll be talking about in a moment, with the sword of my mouth. Therefore, when Jesus makes reference to himself as 
he who has the sharp two-edged sword, he is making clear that what he is about to, to say to us and to say to the people, the Christians at Pergamum, is that he's going to back up what he's saying with the sword. He has power to judge and destroy life on this earth. The life of his enemies and even the lives of his own people if they become complicit in Satan's scheme to corrupt the church. Notice it's in chapter 2, verse 16. Repent. He's telling the church of this, or else I am coming to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword can become a source of judgment and terror even for a Christian, especially when a Christian is instrumental in corrupting the church. When a Christian is instrumental in in doing anything that would hurt or destroy the church, Jesus can destroy and would destroy their life. Does that mean he's going to send them to hell? No. It's like Bob was sharing this morning. Once we believe in Jesus, we're guaranteed we're going to heaven. But the question is, when we show up in heaven, will we show up as those who have been rejected? perhaps even disciplined to the point that our life has been taken, or will we show up as those who have been victors? I call to your attention what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. He says this, If anyone destroys, the word means corrupts, defiles, ruins, or spoils the temple of God, God will destroy, corrupt, defile, ruin, or spoil him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you, the church, are. It's plural. By introducing himself in this way as he addresses this church at Pergamum, Jesus is saying to his people, as well as to you and me, you need to take very seriously what I'm about to say to you. And herein is going to be a problem. Because what he's going to say to us is not something that I think we'll find very easy to accept in our day. This is what he says. Verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says, I know your works and I know where you live. I know what you have done, and I know what you have had to contend with in order to do it, in order to remain loyal to me. In effect, you live in a city where Satan's throne is. That means that Satan has found a political home in this city, and he has many willing subjects in this city to carry out his plan to destroy my good name by destroying my people and by trying to keep people from coming to faith in me. More than anything, Satan wants to keep people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the moment you believe in Him, at that moment, you go from the the kingdom of darkness, which is His kingdom, to the kingdom of light. At that moment, you become a son of the kingdom of light. A son of... a child of God. Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you've had to live with. To accomplish such a plan, Satan 
looks for opportunities in our world. Opportunities to shape a city, to shape a region, to shape a nation, to shape a culture, to shape it in such a way that the people will be repulsed or at least indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ. We're on that track in our own culture. Furthermore, he is always looking for opportunities to create religious and idolatrous practices that appeal to man and give him a sense, a false sense of security, a sense that he's in control of his own destiny. Satan loves to make us think that we've got it all wired, when in reality we don't. When our Lord Jesus Christ says that Satan's throne is here in Pergamum, he is saying that Satan is ruling and exercising great control over this city, this culture, and to a large extent over the people who live there. All except for one group, the Christians who were in the church of Pergamum. To these believers, Jesus offers words of commendation for their works. He said, I know your works. What are the works? He says, you've stood your ground and have held fast to my name. You have stood up for me. You have held up the truth about me and have not wavered or renounced your faith in me. You've not disowned my person. Even in time when many were being put to death among you, you remained faithful. Beginning in your city with the death of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells, who, in keeping and holding up my name, stood his ground against all. In fact, his name means to stand against all. He stood against all the persecution and all who tried to get him to renounce his faith in Christ. And eventually, according to tradition, he was put to death in the most horrendous way. They got a bowl out, a copper bowl, and they heated it till it was red hot, and then they threw him on it and fried him. I can't think of anything more painful. Now, why did Pergamum, and this is just a question I think we need to, to sort of enrich our understanding here, why did Pergamum become the seat of Satan? Such a willing player in Satan's plan to exterminate the church. The other cities weren't this far gone. Why Pergamum? Toward the end of the first century, the city of Pergamon began to be eclipsed by the city of Ephesus. And we've already talked about Ephesus. Ephesus, in terms of importance, was located right on the sea with a great seaport. It had a superior position to Pergamus, and therefore it sort of became de facto the capital of Asia. It was the, the queen city, if you will. And Pergamon, even though it was the capital in name felt very threatened by Ephesus. But Pergamum had no commercial advantage, no seaport. It had a lot to offer to attract people. And it was determined to try to exploit what it had to offer in order to attract people and have them become part of that population in order to get Rome's attention. You see, Pergamum was desperate to retain this coveted position of being the leader 
and the capital of Asia. So Pergamon became zealous in its efforts to provide particularly devotion and loyalty to Rome because Rome is the one that's calling the shots. And Rome was saying, in essence, Ephesus is where it's at. We all know that. But we've got to throw Pergamum a bone and let them think that they're okay. And Pergamum was very nervous about that whole thing. And so what they did is they got very intense in their determination to show their adherence to the imperial cult of Rome. And so they required all of their people in the town to bow before images of the emperor. They were required to attend feasts and banquets on the behalf of the emperor and emperor worship. They were required to pinch a little incense each day and burn that in worship of the emperor as God. And those refusing to do so were tried in an official proconsul or court and were confronted with an alternative. Either you conform and play ball or you die. As the official capital, Pergamum had the right to bear the sword. And so it began to kill Christians who would not play ball. And Jesus is saying, beginning with Antipas, who I think probably was the first of a line of faithful witnesses who were called before the proconsul of Pergamum, and who did not deny their faith in Christ. This church had been a faithful church. Now, I want you to think about something that's important here. We need to understand the kind of church we're talking about before we go on to the next stage. We're not talking about a wimp church here. We're not talking about a wishy-washy church. We're not talking about a church where you hang your brain in the, in the voyeur before you come in. We're talking about a church that had absolute devotion to Jesus Christ and that had its feet firmly planted in his truth. The persecution at Pergamus or Pergamum was perhaps as great as any in the ancient world simply because Pergamum wanted to retain its position as the official city of Rome and of all Asia. However, Satan, if he can't overtly coerce Christians into renouncing Jesus Christ through persecution, then he will become subversive and work to corrupt the church from within. You see, Pergamum endured the frontal attack. But then Satan went in and dropped in behind the lines. And that's when Pergamum got into trouble. They could handle the frontal assault, but they had trouble when Satan dropped in behind the lines and was among them, working within the church itself. And that takes us to our Lord's words in verses 15 and 16, 14 and 15. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who have hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now let me just boil this down for you in these two verses. In these two verses, our Lord Jesus Christ condemns the church. Now when I use the word condemn, it doesn't mean he's condemning the church to hell. It means he's making a judgment about the church. And he's saying what he sees, he hates. He's condemning the church in the sense that he's 
pointing something out that they have done or failed to do, in this case, which grieves him very, very much. And believe me, Christians, we can do things in our lives that the Lord will one day condemn. He won't send us to hell once we put our faith in him as our Savior. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to give an account for the way we live the life that we've lived. The first thing he says in verse 14 is they are condemned for tolerating those in the church who hold the teachings of Balaam. Secondly, he says in verse 15, they are condemned for tolerating those in the church who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Because there is a clear message for us here. I believe it would be good for us to investigate just what these teachers were teaching. First of all, in verse 14, we read that they are condemned for tolerating those in the church who hold the teachings of Balaam. Who's Balaam? What is this doctrine or teaching of Balaam? To begin with, it's not a body of doctrine like we talk about grace theology or reformed theology or Armenian theology. It's not a systematic theology. The teaching of Balaam has more to do with what Balaam was trying to accomplish through his counsel. The story is found back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel were marching to Canaan, the promised land, they reached the land of Moab on their way. Now Balak was the king of Moab. And he sensed that this nation was huge and had awesome power. Furthermore, it was clear that God was with them. All the nations in that world at that time were scared to death because they knew God was with this nation. So sensing their awesome power, he decided to act before it got any worse. And so he wanted to reverse the fortune of the children of Israel. So he got a seer, a prophet from Mesopotamia, which is Iraq to us today. And the seer's name was Balaam. He was a false prophet. But he told Balaam that he would give him a great reward and honor him if he would curse the Israelites, indicating a certain victory of the Moabites, as well as the Midianites who were joined with him in this endeavor, over the children of Israel. However, when Balaam began to prophesy, what happened? As he went to speak the words, what came out was a blessing upon Israel instead of a curse. Whoa. He tried it four times, and each time God took over his mouth and brought forth words that were a blessing to Israel. And Balaam, the king, Balak, the king of, of Moab, was very upset. And Balaam, sensing that he was going to lose his reward and his honor and all the riches that had been promised for him if he would curse the Israelites, he came up with a plan. He concocted a scheme. And the scheme was, he told Balaam, or told the Moabites that, that the way we're going to beat this is that I want the leaders to get the young women together, the beautiful women, and I want you to send them down to the Israelites and let them seduce the men of Israel, getting them to commit fornication, after which then the women who've gotten involved with them through these illicit relationships can lead their families and their people into an idolatrous relationship with God of Baal. And when that happens, Balaam says, the true God of heaven, which he knew, 
would be so incensed that his own people were worshiping the God of Baal that he would be forced to curse them. And that would result in their downfall. Did you catch that? In other words, he's actually trying to play God against his own people. He came up with a plan to get the people to do something that would make, his, that make the Lord so unhappy and so displeased that he would be forced to judge his own people, to judge them as a nation. The plan worked. 24,000 people in Israel died as a result of the wrath of God because of their worship, their idolatry, and their fornication, and their worship that was unacceptable. Balaam was successful. He got the children of Israel to become entangled in an illicit sexual relationships and forbidden idolatrous practices. His plan led them to compromise their convictions and tolerate relationships and practices which would bring the downfall of the people of God. Instead of attacking and wiping out the Moabites, which they could have easily done, God was with them. Now they had played the harlot, the Bible says, with the Moabites and the Midianites. And from then on in the Bible, Balaam is, becomes a prototype of all false teachers who seek to corrupt the people of God by perverting or twisting the truth of God to their own ends. In the church, these are teachers whose teachings encourage Christians to compromise their convictions, that encourage Christians to tolerate relationships and behavior which will result in wasted, ruined lives. That was the first thing that they're condemned for. They tolerated those kind of teachers. The second thing in verse 15 that our Lord condemns them for, the Pergamans, Pergamamians, Christian, they are condemned for tolerating those in their church who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As we saw in our Lord's words to the church at Ephesus, who also referred to the Nicolaitans there, the Nicolaitans represent the valley floor, if you will, the bottom of the, 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 the barrel, the worst of the worst of false teaching. They stand in contrast to the love of Christ and those who are devoted to Him and to doing what commands, what He commands because of His love for them. Now, there's a lot of confusion about who the Nicolaitans were. There's not much scripture about them. There's these two references. They are associated here with the teaching of Balaam, however, and it seems to me that Nicolaitans took the teaching of Balaam a step further. The Nicolaitans, and the word actually means conquer and people, two words together, actually sought to conquer and control the people of God by turning them away from the Lord himself. Their overriding intention was to get the people to forsake their love and devotion to Christ. They're looking to steal their hearts. And you find that today in a lot of false teaching. It's not just that they're trying to confuse and mess you up. It's that they actually want to steal your heart away from the Lord and make you follow them and love them and think only about them. That's where the Nicolaitans were. They wanted people to have absolute devotion and allegiance to them, not to the Lord Jesus Christ and they used false teaching to gain that hand. The church in Ephesus was commanded, commended for not tolerating them, but the church of Pergamum did tolerate them. And for that reason, they were condemned in this passage. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ has something against the church at Pergamum. And he is very careful how he states it. And I want you to listen carefully. Just what he has against them. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't say, I have something against you because you hold the doctrine of Balaam or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say that, does he? What he does say is, I have this against you because you hold them who hold the doctrine of Balaam and you hold them who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The teaching or the church at Pergamum was not being condemned for holding the false doctrine, although it was permeating through the church in some extent. It was being condemned for holding those who did believe and teach false doctrine. They tolerated those in their midst who held to false doctrine and who taught false teaching and who taught in such a way to lure the people away from Jesus Christ, away from his works, away from his words. They taught in such a way in the case of the Nicolaitans to steal the heart of the people away for themselves. How would these false teachers lure the people away? We'd have to take a guess. They would probably question and challenge every attempt in the church to take a stand against a culture and religious beliefs and practices that are clearly wrong for a Christian. They might say or suggest things like, what harm is there in attending a civic festival and eating a little idol meat that is being offered to Zeus? What harm is there in participating in an ecumenical pagan ceremony in which all gods are recognized? Perhaps by our presence as Christians, some might even come to Christ. They might suggest that in view of our freedom in Christ, what's wrong with a banquet with a little lewd sexual display? Even a, a, a little fling with a temple prostitute might be okay if you look at the food is for the, the stomach and likewise sex is for the body. I mean, it all makes sense, doesn't it? It's a release, right? And what about a visit to the health center and the sacred springs for a little healing from the medicine god, Esculapius? Is all this really that bad? After all, this is the first century. Let's get with it. We need to get more in step with the times. Jesus. Yes, sweet, sweet, loving Jesus. He condemned His people for one thing here, for being tolerant. Oops. Oh, my. To say that in the United States of America is tantamount to social heresy. We're to tolerate everything. That's the foundation stone of our, of our religion in the United States today is toleration. We don't know anything. We just say we believe and give everyone freedom to do whatever and think whatever they want. Just don't tell me what to think or how to live. Being influenced by our culture, I think we probably tend to make light of this kind of sin, wouldn't we? I mean, this is a failure, okay. But is that a big failure? So they didn't yank the chain of these people that were teaching false doctrine. So they didn't say, I won't cooperate. And they got together with some false teachers. Well, let me say this. There is one sin that rots the socks off our Savior. 
that gets him fighting mad. It is when his own people tolerate false teaching and false teachers in their midst. If you want to infuriate the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you and I got infuriated when we read those stories about children that would say, you can't make me a little five-year-old. Can you believe that? Doesn't that make your blood boil? For the sake of the child, give them some discipline. It's an act of love. Well, if you want to infuriate the Lord Jesus Christ, then tolerate teachers that would lead us away from what pleases Him. Away from His Word. Away from a loving relationship with Him. Just listen to the anger and the fury in His voice in the next verse, verse 16. Well, verse 15 and then verse 16. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I mean, for Jesus to say, I hate something, that's serious, friends. Then he goes on, repent to the church, change your ways, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to turn the church into a bloodbath. If you won't do something, I will. That's what he's saying. And when I am finished, my church is going to be bloodied and battered. Toleration of false teachers in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ will inevitably lead to a declaration of war. And this is why Paul told young Timothy, who was facing false teaching in the church at Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote him, he said, war the good warfare. Oh, my, that's in the Bible? That's so violent. Oh, In warfare, lives and territory are at stake. Look at Iraq today. It's American lives. And the territory of Iraq is at stake. Spiritually, we need to go at war, go to war, because false teachers and false teaching are trying to make a stake on our lives and on the territory of the church. They're trying to move in. Friends, it's happening big time in our country today, in our nation, in our world. The point made over and over again in the Bible and especially in the letters written to the church is that whenever sound teaching comes under attack by false teachers, that is the time to go to war. Yet when we go to war, what do we usually go to war for? Let's see. We go to war over things like we brawl, over maybe like whether we should have pews or chairs. Or we go to war over whether the music should be contemporary or whether it should be traditional. We go to war over whether we should paint the men's bathroom white or yellow. We go to war over those things. Can we see it? Satan has conned us, if you will, into thinking toleration of false teaching and compromise of our convictions and values is not all that bad. Jesus says it's real bad. It's the worst. And I'm going to fight if you won't. If you won't get your hands dirty, I'm going to send a war. Yet our Lord came down hard on a church that had known persecution and martyrdom. This is a good church. I mean, people died for their love for Jesus Christ. Simply because they tolerated false teaching and false teachers in their midst, however, Jesus condemns them. That tells you how serious this is, friends. And we don't take it serious today. We can't mention a person's name. 
without offending people in church today. If we mention a false teacher, and I could mention several, but if we mentioned a false teacher, there will be people that will be so incensed they will leave this church and never come back. You don't do that in this culture. Friends, that mindset is wrong. It's all wrong. It's like the counsel I would give to a parent. Draw a few lines, but when you draw a line, back it up. At all costs, if you've drawn the line, back it up. I didn't draw many lines. I remember once my son's out chopping wood, and I should have maybe drawn a line and said, Honey, you shouldn't do that. But he was chopping away, and I went over to him, and I said, Let me just suggest something here, Craig. When you cut your finger off, I want you to put it in the freezer so we can take it to the doctor and he'll sew it back on for you. That was my mindset because I knew if I had a line, I'd have to stand there and make sure he didn't cross the line. It's good to draw lines, but not too many. But when we draw them, we need to back them up. Jesus says his yoke is easy. He hasn't drawn that many lines. His commandments are not unbearable. His ultimate commandment is that we love one another. His teaching can be understood. But he says, repent of this. Do not tolerate false teachers. That's the line in the sand. The Bible teaches separation, not toleration. The Bible teaches consecration, not compromise. When someone knocks on the door of your home and says, I'm representing a group, and the group clearly, you know clearly, they deny the person and the work of Jesus Christ, how should you respond? Let me read to you a passage of Scripture and let it speak for itself. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and an antichrist. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not, do not receive him into your home nor greet him. Whoa! That doesn't sound like a loving thing, Lord. But that's what you said. What should we do with someone who is argumentative? Someone who's always hung up on inconsequentials, on small things, who's always trying to start an argument or a debate or a fight or do things that would hurt our relationship or try to legislate our relationship with the Lord. All he's telling us how we ought to live according to the law as he, as he perceives it or she perceives it. Paul writes Titus, but avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition. Doesn't get any clearer. How should we respond to godless chatter and empty intellectualism? He writes Timothy and he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He doesn't mince words. How should we treat a brother who disregards God's word? And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. Do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He's still going to heaven. But you don't keep company with him until he gets his act together. How should we view someone who teaches an unclear gospel? Paul says, let them be accursed in Galatians chapter 1. Does the scripture teach separation? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
using this very idea of becoming involved in the, the worship of idols through eating of their meat and celebrating in their feast. He says, come out from among them and be separate. Don't be involved in their religious nonsense in any way, even in the least degree. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. In Romans 16, we read, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which you have learned and avoid them. And then I want to close with 2 Timothy 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of self, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. And from such people turn away. This is certainly, friends, not the kind of message I would dream up to preach in Southern California. I did not choose this message. It came to us as we're going through this portion of Scripture. And that's one of the beautiful things about preaching through the Word of God. You sometimes have to deal with stuff you wouldn't choose to preach on. I didn't choose it because I think we need a little spanking. I brought it to you because it's clearly laid out for us in the Scripture. What is this clearly saying to you and me? It is saying, don't be like the parent of a troubled child who hears no evil, who sees no evil, and who speaks no evil. The Bible exhorts all of God's people to be vigilant and sober-minded, especially in these days. Being tolerant, my dear friend, is to be on God's, on our Lord Jesus Christ's bad list. It's to be on the bad list. Because in the end, toleration will lead to tragedy. Next week, we're going to see just how great a tragedy, great toleration will lead to. Our Father, I pray that you would help us to take the truth of your word and to use it in such a way that it will encourage our hearts. Make us stronger and help us to stand for you in these days in which Satan so often seems to have dropped in behind the lines and is causing so many of us to stumble as we see our way through a maze of confusion over what we believe and how we should live as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to close with the hymn Almighty. It's number 131. And it's really easy. You probably don't even need to open your handles. (laughs) 